Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode two of our Bracket on a Boat. This week, we'll be talking about 2012's Battleship, as well as 1990's The Hunt for Red October. And if you're wondering, guys, Battleship is ostensibly based on the board game. Adding to the long list of movies based on games that just aren't that good. <laughs> Sorry to open with a spoiler there, but, uh, oh boy. We'll get into it. The- the film does have some interesting things going on, but it's going up against Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. Before we get any further, I want to offer a correction. On our bracket list, we put up the most famous boat from each movie, and I'd say that instead of the John Paul Jones for Battleship, it might have been the Missouri. I feel like that fits better with the overall thing. That's fair. I thought about it, and I was debating between the two, but I... I went with the John Paul Jones because I hadn't seen the film mm. and it got mentioned slightly more. Oh yeah, that's totally fair. We couldn't know. We went in with no real sonar for this narrative. We had to have Poshos based on a grid. I mean, there's also the John Paul Jones is the ship that they're on for the most compelling part of the film. That's true. That is the part where they play Battleship. <laughs> they're not actually on a battleship. It's a destroyer. The film makes sure that we know what... You know what? No. Yeah. <laughs> Get there. First a summary. What's happening in this goddamn movie? So... NASA sets up a satellite array in Hawaii to try to make contact with alien life. Meanwhile, upsetting naval officer Stone convinces his dumpster fire of a brother, Alex, to join the Navy to get his act together after he is arrested for drunkenly trying to impress uh, Sam Shane, the, the daughter of Admiral Liam Neeson. Ten years later, we are in an entirely different movie where Alex has cleaned up his act as a rising officer and is dating Sam, even though he blew it with her the first time. How did he make this jump? We don't know. There's no way of knowing. Anyway... Alex's rivalry with Captain Nagata leads him to being discharged, but not uh, until after some war games. A combined effort between the U.S. and Japanese Navy around Hawaii. And then suddenly, aliens land! They put up a giant force field around Hawaii and take out all but one of the ships uh, in the war games, including Stone, leaving Alex the highest ranking officer. With no way to engage head-on, Nagata suggests using the greater storm buoys to track the alien ships based on their water displacement. Alex cedes the captaincy to him. The ships all skirmish, and in the end, all are destroyed, our protagonists fleeing on life rafts to an old decommissioned battleship. In the B-plot, the aliens have landed in Hawaii and are trying to take the satellite array. Sam, her double amputee patient, uh, Mike, and the satellite's lead scientist, Cal, realize the aliens want to phone home to bring more reinforcements here and go through some character growth or whatever to buy Alex and company time. With only one shot left, Alex chooses to destroy the satellite array to keep the Earth safe at the risk of his and his crew's life, but Liam Neeson's able to arrive just in time to save them and take out the last ship. The day is saved, it's medals for everyone, and Liam Neeson begrudgingly allows Alex to marry his daughter. One correction, uh, Sam's physical therapy patient's name is Mick, not Mike. Oh, heck, sorry. It's cool. Mm. Very easy mistake. Right. Where do you want to start with this one? How about we start multiple times like the film does and talk about the Five opening scenes that this movie has. Mm-hmm. This has approximately as many opening scenes as Lord of the Rings has ending scenes. Honestly, you know what I'd compare it to is Suicide Squad. Mm, yeah, I say it's, similar, it's like squarely between Suicide Squad and the Transformers movies. Mm-hmm. And I just want to see when those were coming out. Uh, 2007. Oh, wow. But this is squarely in the middle between Dark of the Moon and Age of Extinction. And it has kind of that vibe where you have very impressive military things happening and a lot of aliens that are not very inspired in their design Mm. a lot of cgi that is used poorly a lot of explosions that feel weightless and a lot of unlikable characters running around doing stuff with a plot that is both too complicated and not interesting enough yes so we talked about alex hopper is kind of this schlubby loser and his opening scene is actually great yeah so they're celebrating his 
birthday. I believe he's turning 26. Something like that. They're at a bar. Alex sees a attractive blonde walk up and ask for a burrito, but the kitchen is closed, by which he means the bartender won't microwave a burrito for her. So he leaves the bar, arrives at a gas station just as, as it is being closed, breaks in, breaks everything else in his attempt to get his burrito, and manages to give it to her just as he's being tased by the police. He does all of this drunk, by the way. It's actually very funny, very compelling, good slapstick. The use of editing to show the increasing destruction of this gas station is really fun. I had high hopes. I was like, wow, this is a great scene. Maybe the rest of the movie will be as good. Yeah, it was really good. And then we like do a time skip to a soccer game between the U.S. and Japanese navies before the naval exercises are set to begin. Mm-hmm. And Alex is now a lieutenant commander in the Navy, along with his brother. He's on the soccer team. They're tied up, and there's a penalty kick to see who wins the game. And Alex is a completely different character at this point. Mm -hmm. And he's dating Sam. That all just happened off screen. Not just dating Sam, but like seriously dating Sam. They're talking about how to get permission from her dad so they can get married. <sighs> give me your permission. I, it would be an honor to have your permission. Sir, give me your permission. What's your deal? It'd be a thankful honor to have your permission to honor your hand. What? Oh my God. Because awful traditional gender roles. Mm-hmm. They do at least mention that it's awful traditional gender role stuff, but uh, whatever. He's Admiral Liam Neeson. He's a traditionalist. I know he has a real name. I'm just calling him Admiral Liam Neeson. I think it's like Terrence Shane or something. It's a boring name. I'm calling him Admiral Liam Neeson. <laughs> we could have easily had that be the opening scene of the film because with the exception of the burrito, which comes back as a callback joke at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm late for lunch. I think I'll have a chicken burrito. Come along, Hopper. We'll discuss the terms of your surrender over a meal. Nothing from that is very relevant. My assumption there is that they wrote the burrito scene and the like that ending button, like that's like a good like bookendy thing, and then the script changed and evolved a little bit, and then but they didn't want to take it out because they were like, this is actually really good. Yeah, like that. That is my assumption is that it is holdovers from a much earlier script that they didn't work in very well. And that's the the second opening scene. Then the next opening scene, we got this fight between. Alex and Nagata in a bathroom, and Alex being about to be discharged. And then the fourth opening scene, we're on the boats for the for the war games. The fifth opening scene happens before all of this, and it's telling us about the communications project that is the thing that attracts the aliens in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I'll allow that. It is the same kind of prologue as Galadriel going, I feel it in the water, I'm on an eye. And we just get like this summary of the first War of the Rings or whatever. It's mostly like newsroom press releases, stuff like that. And it's just, here's all of the plot conceit that we need you to just buy into so we can get the fun stuff. I will say, I don't need a full explanation of like how it works, what planet they're aiming for and all, and why. I think you could have done that with two or three lines of dialogue and then skip straight to the plot. But also, if you're going to name the planet, don't name it Planet G. That's so boring. I don't know if that was like a reference or something, but I was just... Under, it might be like a, that's what it's actually called or something. Like the, I'm wondering if that's like an actual planet out there that we've named that is actually like, this, what's it called? Sweet spot? Goldilocks zone. I could look it up, but I don't care enough. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and get into that? Because the aliens are incredibly underwhelming. So 
My comparison here is the aliens from Cowboys and Aliens. I would say they're even worse. They are. But it's the same kind of mentality where they show up to do some violence and are characteristically underdeveloped. Their ships are kind of clearly not of this earth, but not particularly imaginative in their design. There's a lot of like color or personality to them. And the aliens don't seem to express feelings often. They don't seem to have a lot of like culture to them. Yeah. Like, there's a little implication because the exploding pegs that the aliens shoot at the ships uh, have, like, design work on them that seems to be more for beauty than for function. But even then, it's not much. I read it more as just demarcating what type of ammo it was. Sure. So, like, you know, the, this is explosive, this is incendiary, mm-hmm. this is armor penetrating. This is gravity bomb. Mm-hmm. I did like the gravity bombs. Uh, for the most part, we don't see much of the aliens outside of their spacesuits. When we do, instead of hair, they have quills. Their eyes are more sensitive to ultraviolet radiation, so they have to wear, like, sun visors. Mm-hmm. And then, as opposed to having four fingers and then an opposing thumb, they have, uh, like, two sets of opposing fingers, so mm-hmm. they have four total. And mm-hmm. it's like a sort of, like, finger claw. Yeah. Other than that, they are functionally humanoid. They're basically the rubber forehead aliens. Yeah, and you can't really tell about their weird hand shape while they're in their spacesuits most of the time, so it just looks like some concept art that they grabbed from a first-person sci-fi shooter. Mm-hmm. Like, it could have easily come out of, like, Anthem or Destiny. Uh-huh. And I'm totally fine with, like, rubber forehead aliens. I don't need my aliens to be, like, weird or amorphous or very clearly not humanoid. That's totally fine. It's yeah. Really, it makes sense for, like, a Goldilocks planet, too. But... The aliens don't really have any clear motivation. The ones from Cowboys and Aliens want gold. Yeah, because that's what powers their ship. Mm-hmm. And it is an odd motivation, but the movie at least like calls it out with that great bit where uh, Harrison Ford is like, Well, that's just ridiculous. What are they going to do? Buy something? <laughs> <laughs> and that's enough. Like They have a concrete motivation that even if we don't fully understand it, even if it seems like a lot of warmongering for things they could have just gotten much more easily, I'm fine with as a narrative concept, especially since it plays into the themes. Here they just want to blow us up because the first person they met was Alex Hopper and they assumed that all humans were like that. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll allow that. The other thing is that Alex gets like a psychic vision from them and they never fucking touch on it again. Oh yeah, I forgot that. Yeah. Also the aliens, we have a decent number of shots where their visors will show like red for problem, green for safe, non-combatant or whatever. So there's a bit where they land like in a... A kid's like Little League field, they scan the kid and the kid glows green and they don't blow him up. And there's a few other scenes where like, if a person isn't a holding weapon, they don't fight them. And you get the impression that they are only after combatants. It's not like a kill all humans thing, but I don't get why. I thought we were like going to lead up to a thing where there's like a big misunderstanding. They were scared and assumed that we were hostile and we did the same thing and we will all come together as a, we're really sorry, we're going to fix this kind of thing. But the aliens don't really have much of a personality beyond that and it's such... It feels like someone wanted them to, but that just didn't make it into the final version or something. I don't know. It's What it leaves me with is the sense that the creators assume that the nature of life is to make war, or the nature of culture is to, to do battle automatically, and that there's no room for empathy or art or hope, and that makes me feel sad. I don't want it, to live in that kind of world. It makes sense with how much of this movie is a fellatio to the military. Boy, howdy. So they do a lot of pandering to the military and patriotism and all that. Sam is a physical therapist who specifically works with 
vets with uh, mobility difficulties after injuries. And so we get a whole scene of going through all these combat vets recuperating from amputations or other things like that. And there's a major character, Mick, who is a double below the knee amputee. Mm -hmm. Played by an actual veteran who's a double below the knee amputee. Yes. Which I'm glad they didn't have like an able-bodied actor playing that role. Yeah. But also... I get the impression that the character he's playing is a name-swap version of himself. Yes. Um, which, I think there's a lot to unpack about disability and people who have been invalided out of the military and all that jazz that I don't necessarily feel fully qualified to get into. But there's a weirdness to how much it glorifies the military without really unpacking the problems of it, which is sort of a problem with any military movie in general, really. Yeah. Uh, he is unfortunately not a terribly good actor. Mm-hmm. He's not bad, per se, but he's very stiff. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's really weird juxtaposing him with the scientist who was overacting. Boy, howdy. Oh, God. I Oh, the scientist has the worst line in the movie. Uh, the scientist is freaking out about all the aliens because he's seen the aliens doing stuff. And he sees Mick, who's just a double amputee with mobility aids, and he goes, Oh, shit, is he a cyborg? Are you with them? And it's so shitty. Like, we, we had to pause the film and just... Wait, d- did he just... <laughs> I think there is definitely room for an interesting narrative about people with prosthetics and how they might be viewed very differently in a movie dealing with the panic of an alien invasion. I think that you could explore those themes in interesting ways if you had competent, delicate writing and that was your whole movie. This is not that. Yeah. Like, I am aware that there are some people who do have prosthetics, especially electronically enhanced ones, that do like to think of themselves as cyborgs because it it's cool, but that should not be a blanket thing. Right. And also, like, jumping from is he a cyborg to are, is he with them is super gross. Yes. Um, honestly, uh, I would definitely, like, identify as a cyborg if, if I had robot parts. Hell yeah. Yeah. Also, much like many other military things, anybody who's not in the military is kind of looked down on. So Cal is a cowardly scientist who has to be kind of almost threatened into helping out do some science things. Yeah, the politician at like Joint Chiefs of Staffs over in Washington trying to figure out the situation is viewed as very much incompetent, out of his depth, and not really doing anything to help. Which, fair enough. I also would be incompetent out of my depth if I was just a politician who suddenly had to deal with an alien invasion and didn't have all the information because force field. Speaking of politics, there is a Trump reference in here, which has not aged very well. Also, Obama is canonically president. Which means this takes place in our universe. Or like or at least like a branch it. off of. Right. Yeah, the Donald Trump reference has not aged well at all. It's weird, especially since uh, it's Rihanna making it. Yeah, Rihanna's in this movie. Oh yeah, this cast is truly wild. It's like, oh, hi, Alex Skarsgård. Hi, Rihanna. Hi, Liam Neeson. Hi, Rami Malek. Hi, Guy from the Newsroom. Hi, John Turturro. Hi... I don't remember John Turturro. And I'm being sarcastic. Okay. <laughs> this film has a surprisingly good cast. Right, like there's a lot of talented people here. The main problem is the script and I'm also going to say the editing and direction. Mm-hmm. It definitely feels like they just cobbled this film together from the shots that they had and tried to make it work and it doesn't there's a lot of filler to pad this out mm-hmm. i don't know why they they pad this out to two hours feels like you should probably cut this down to 90 minutes like there's this whole sequence of these like giant shredder drones mm-hmm. they're like spheres that rip apart anything that they touch mm-hmm. 
completely destroying the infrastructure of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Because? Be- because, like, it... I guess that the point here was we need to show that if more of these aliens show up, it will be bad, but we can already see that from their scary peg ships. Yeah. I feel like they invented the shredder drones and were really excited about them and didn't want to cut them, mm-hmm. which I don't get. They're just, just that one tire from that movie about the telekinetic tire that blows people up, but with spikes. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Let's talk about the one big good thing in this movie, mm-hmm. which is how they incorporate elements of the board game battleship into the film. I think all of the ways in which they do things like that are incredibly interesting and thoughtful. Mm -hmm. So the concept is that because the ships are made of alien metal or whatever, they can't attract them with sonar. Uh, Radar. Radar. It's radar here, sonar in our other film. My bad. They can't attract them with the DAR. Um, (laughs) And so they don't know where the ships are, but if they're too close to the ships, they can be easily fired upon and destroyed. So they have to use long range missiles that that are further away from the uh, alien ships can reach. Mm -hmm. Great concept. And so Captain Nagata suggests using uh, the tsunami buoys to create a grid and figure out where the displacement is by the ships moving around in the water and then fire on that spot. Great! That's a really fun way to incorporate the idea of Battleship into a movie. It's kind of a silly concept. The game of Battleship is creating a very specific scenario in order to play the game that wouldn't really track her well into real life. Mm-hmm. So that part was good, but also only lasts like 20 minutes at most. Mm-hmm. As we've mentioned before, the alien sh- uh, ships, they shoot pegs that look like the little pegs you stick in the board for Battleship. Mm-hmm. Which is a nice, like, little touch. When they're actually in the battleship sequence, it's the grid and they have, like, little red spots for hits, white spots for misses. Mm -hmm. Right. I think a good thing that would have made the aliens feel more interesting and also would have been more of a, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge for the battleship thing is if the ship's been, like, very red. If they had, like, a very, like, red and white design. Mm -hmm. Like, just play with that. Like, there's kind of a boring gunmetal gray against the also boring gunmetal gray battleships and destroyers. Why yeah. not have the big red ships? Yeah. We talked about it, and I think one of the major ways we would have changed this to make it more interesting is rather than just like a bunch of normal military ships, all of these ships from all of these different like Pacific navies are collaborating and like here's all of the cool experimental stuff we've been working on, mm-hmm. and those are the ships that have to fight the alien ships. It makes the ships more of characters, like each of them has their different specialties, different sizes. This one has some sort of electromagnetic pulse weapon, this is some sort of sonic attack or whatever. Yeah. What I'm saying is this needs to be much more like Pacific Rim. (laughs) Yes. And having a little more personality for the ships would make us care a little bit more when they get blown up. Like, I'm kind of sad to lose Alexander Skarsgård when his boat gets blown up, but only because I, you know, watched True Blood. Yeah. And and am gay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Stone is barely a character in this, and the aliens show up, and he tries to establish contact, and then pretty much, like, immediately gets blown up. Mm -hmm. One of the parts that made me really, really hate Alex was the bit where the Miyoko is blown up, and there are, like, people, like, in the water trying to get to life rafts, or at least not drown, and everyone else around Alex has to basically beg him to go save them instead of engaging with uh, the alien ships. Sir, the Miyoko is sinking! Sir, please! That's the course to 310! Please, sir! There are sailors in the water, sir! It's so frustrating that we're following this person who is such a ugh person. Yeah. If he had chosen to go save them against everybody who's saying, no, we should, we should go and fight, that would have made him much more compelling and relatable. Mm-hmm. A few other quick hits... There is so much lens flare in this movie that there are a number of scenes where I can barely tell what's going on. Another weird thing is that 
we get a lot of close-up shots of the ships so they can show off all their CGI budget with the, you know, the moving parts and the water coming off and all that jazz, but not a lot of good overhead shots to establish where things are in relation to each other and how the different missiles are moving. So I don't really get a sense of the scale and scope of the battle. Mm-hmm. So the battles don't feel very real because I'm just watching close-ups. There's a few towards the end that are better. And during the like club hauling scene, we get more of that. But a lot of it doesn't feel very tactical. And I feel like you should have a very tactical approach to your battleship movie. Yeah. One thing I do like is from the bar scene at the beginning of the film, Alex goes up to talk to Sam. He's like, What's your name? I'm hungry. Honestly, probably the best line of the film. Gave me hope. Yeah. Also, Rihanna gets to do some ridiculous things like shoot a Gatling gun at an alien ship or blow up a single alien with a gun turret on the destroyer. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sad that Rihanna keeps being in like subpar sci-fi movies like this and Valerian. I'm glad that she's usually having a good time in them. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the uh, the art of war and casual racism? I... I don't, maybe should, I don't know. I don't, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's when Nagata and Hopper are kind of vying for command after the Miyoko gets blown up and... There is a way. A way? A way of seeing them without seeing them. You're going to reference Art of War right now, aren't you? What are we supposed to do, fight the enemy where they aren't? Move like water? Because I've read that thing like six times, it makes no sense. That book is Chinese. It's so frustrating, and also, like, we didn't talk about Nagata much, but I, I like him as a character. He's He seems, like, sensible and level-headed. Like, maybe not a very vibrant character, but certainly more likable than Alex, and yeah. probably a better person to be in charge yeah. right now. And there, there are some, like, fun buddy cop scenes between Alex and Nagata. Like, there's a bit where the force field generator ship starts coming at them, and... I didn't think that one moved. Me neither. I feel like someone read one line from the art of war and was really into it so they wanted to like write that in and there was no one to tell them not to Mm -hmm. it even gets a callback later on when hopper does this weird maneuver to destroy the last ship where he drifts a boat yeah uh, attack your enemy where he is not and god is like that's not what that line means at all (laughs) (laughs) if this was more like ragtag groups or like young cadets or whatever and Instead of being a like actually competent navy person, he was just like some hotshot who read the Art of War and thought he was hot shit, and kept like quoting it wrong. We had like a running gag where he's like making sensible choices and then referencing an entirely unrelated Art of War line. <laughs> that would be really fun. That'd be great. Yes, that should be like a really fun character beat. Mm-hmm. Also, I will admit begrudgingly, anybody who Tokyo drifts a vehicle that is not meant to be Tokyo drifted does get points from me. Yeah, it's why Robin Hood Twenty Eighteen is good DM. I will also admit that I feel. I feel two ways about the whole, like, Missouri sequence. So the Missouri, uh, at the beginning of the film, is dedicated as this uh, naval museum that it is also a decommissioned battleship. But they're out of ships towards the end, and they just take it to fight the aliens. But it's so old, most of them don't know how to crew it. So they have all of these, like, World War II and Korean War vets, like, helping them man the ship. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, I do love... Old people who get to come back and do some fighting stuff. That's yeah. a fun trope. But again, it feels much like military fellatio in ways that yeah. are that make this clearly a dad thriller. Yes. That is cool, but with all the other stuff going on, it feels very pandering. I think I would have liked it a lot more if Act 1 was all the, like the 
modern destroyers and young people um, getting taken out. And so, like, there's no, there's literally nobody left but the old guys who are like, shit, there's no one else. It's just us and our one ship. We gotta make this work. That could have been really fun. So space cowboys, but uh, with battleships? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, red, but with battleships, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have talked enough about Battleship. <laughs> I think we've talked more than Battleship deserved, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it's so frustrating that it has so much plot and so much of it doesn't work. And I said that at the end of watching it, before we got to Red October, and I said, but I get it. It's probably not very easy to like make just people looking at radar and sonar for two hours all that interesting. Speaking of making people looking at radar and sonar interesting for two hours, let's talk about Red October. <laughs> In 1984, the Soviets began field testing a new nuclear sub, the Red October. It's equipped with a silent propulsion system, a caterpillar drive, making it invisible to passive sonar. CIA analyst Jack Ryan eventually deduces the ship's capabilities from intelligent photos and consulting experts. Meanwhile, the captain of the Red October, Marco Ramius, has gone rogue, killing the political officer assigned to the sub and relaying false orders to the crew, sending them on a course for America's eastern waters. Ryan is then pulled into brief government officials about the Red October, in which he also learns that the Soviet Navy has been deployed to sink the sub. Many in the room fear Ramius as a madman and attempting to nuke the United States, but Ryan hypothesizes he's attempting to defect. Ryan is given three days to prove his theory, but after that they will need to sink the sub. The rest of the film sees various individuals from the U.S. Navy and the defectors aboard Red October navigating the tense political situation, a KGB saboteur, a Soviet hunter sub, and preventing the USSR from knowing of the successful defection and the US capturing the Caterpillar drive. They eventually succeed, and Ryan welcomes Ramius to the New World. And it's a very brief summary of a film that has a lot of like complex moves, that, like, very, like very chess piece well thought out. But honestly, just watch it on your own. It's very fun, and I don't want to spoil too much of how it all works. Trying to hit all of the major beats of the film while I was writing this, I'm like, I am not going to be able to do a lot of them justice. Just explaining what they do doesn't make it compelling. You have to see how they convey it to the audience. A lot of that comes from having these incredibly good actors. Uh, You've got Alec Baldwin here, Sean Connery, Sam Neill, Courtney P. Vance, Tim Curry, James Earl Jones, Stellan Skarsgård, Anthony Peck. Yeah. Like... It's a wild cast of people who I know from other stuff who all seem like they're doing different things than usual, and Mm -hmm. I'm having a good time with that. Yeah. This has a huge ensemble cast of characters, and the film does a great job of balancing them all. Like, there are definitely characters that are more prominent than others, but it it completely works. Alec Baldwin here reminds me a lot of his character from The Shadow in the way he kind of has this intensity and drive to him, but Mm -hmm. with less of the cool manipulation. This is based on the Tom Clancy characters and novels of, yes. the, of the same name. Yeah, this is the first in the Jack Ryan film series. It's also, I believe, based off of Tom Clancy's first novel. Mm-hmm. And I have no great love for Tom Clancy. I don't dislike him, but I just it's not my kind of thing. But watching this made me want more of this. I want more of Alec Baldwin as this character. Unfortunately, Alec Baldwin has not played Jack Ryan again. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, I think, five other films in the series. There's also now a TV show. Mm-hmm. With the exception of the TV show, no one's played Jack Ryan more than twice. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, a lot of the books have kind of that like dad thriller vibe as well, like the very pro-America thing. But this movie, at least, is more complicated and nuanced than Battleship was about it. Yes. Like, we spend, I'd say, an equal amount of time with Ramius as we do with Jack Ryan. And, like, we understand where he's coming from, where his emotional landscape is, watching him delicately maneuver the crew as they're delicately maneuvering the ship is great. Mm -hmm. 
because he and the officers that he's chosen for this mission all wish to defect and live in America, but most of the crew is still loyal to the USSR. So he is trying to manage the crew while also being able to implement his plan. And it's really interesting seeing that intensity going on in this very confined space. Mm -hmm. Especially since there's also a saboteur going on who is making things more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. The the claustrophobic way that it's shot, the way all these characters are dressed very stiffly, creates so much drama and uh, and characters, really not a lot of things actually happening. Mm -hmm. I also appreciate how the film deals with the language barrier and with accents. So throughout, like, maybe the first 15, 20 minutes of the film, all of the Russian characters are speaking Russian. We occasionally get subtitles for them when it's appropriate. But when Ramius is sitting down with the political officer, um, they're quoting, I think it's Oppenheimer. And what's this? I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It is an ancient Hindu text quoted by an American. And then they transition to just speaking in English. And it's it's the seamless transitions. Like he spoke English for this quote and they're just, they're continuing in English just so the audience can understand and it's easier. So Sean Connery doesn't have to learn a lot of Russian mm-hmm. with his Scottish accent. Yes. And I think it's perfectly fine. I don't need, I don't necessarily need there to be all that many subs Yeah. on this movie, but shut up. <laughs> I, I do also think it's interesting that most of the Russian actors are British. Uh, so you still have a accent difference between them, so you can easily place where you are, mm-hmm. but it's much more easy to distinguish and understand for English-speaking audiences. Yeah. I will say that the subs all look pretty similar on the inside, so there are times when I would get a little bit lost about what boat we were on, but that's just the nature of boats, I assume. See, I didn't have that problem, but I was less looking at the architecture and more at the lighting, because the lighting between boats is very different. Mm, that's fair. Like, Red October is cast in most, like, yellows and reds, whereas the lighting on the Dallas is more blues and greens. Hmm. That makes sense. Another thing I like about this is that there are very interesting stakes. So it's not just, there's a rogue ship, we gotta destroy it. It's, there's a rogue ship that wants to defect, and we have to bring it safely to America without anybody finding out about us, uh, with minimal ways to contact it. Also, we can't really find it with normal detection methods. And also... We have to get all the crew off of it safely. Mm-hmm. Having all these different challenges that everybody's trying to navigate makes it way more interesting than just a game of cat and mouse. Yes. But the game of cat and mouse is still really fun. The way they pilot the ship based on having very precise measurements of underwater canyons and knowing exactly when to turn because they're going at a certain speed, but then Ramius will tell them to go faster and they have to recalculate on the fly is so fun and compelling. I could watch just that for two hours. Mm-hmm. Captain, we are approaching the first turn. 25 seconds to course one. Increase speed to 26 knots and recompute. It's, it's great. I also really like how Ryan comes to all of his conclusions about what's going on with Ramius. He, like, he's a CIA analyst. He specializes in naval history and naval combat. And he has also met Ramius once uh, at a like embassy dinner sort of deal. But, you know, as he's in that briefing where they're like... But Admiral Pedoran immediately demanded a meeting with Premier Chenyenko. And within minutes of that meeting, the Soviet fleet sailed with orders to find Red October and sink her. Why is that? Is, is he attempting to start World War III? And Ryan's like, wait, the date they left is exactly one year after his wife's death. And he's like... And he's not Russian. 
He's Lithuanian by birth, raised by his paternal grandfather, a fisherman. And he has no children, no ties to leave behind. And Ryan determines he's trying to defect. Mm -hmm. It's a little while before we are for certain of that is because he knew exactly what Rand October is designed to do. It's a silent sub with a nuclear payload that is specifically designed to start a war and he couldn't be a part of that. And it's like, no, this thing cannot exist. Mm -hmm. I do like that there is some time where we are uncertain about whether Jack Ryan is right about this. Like mm -hmm. it, it, again, adds this tension moment. Mm -hmm. But also the the complicated decision-making and the fact we don't know uh, Ramius's motivation at first make all of his actions seem very off-culture as if he may in fact be a madman who just wants to blow up America. Yeah. Uh, so it's very believable and that makes it more tense. Yeah. Our first introduction to Ramius, he fucking kills a man. Mm -hmm. A government official. Yes. And then takes uh, his nuclear launch key because he is he, the captain of the ship has one and the political officer has one so that no one person can just launch a nuke willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. He then has, has access to both and it causes a lot of tension. Uh, the doctor on the ship is like, This is most unnerving, Captain. The reason for having two missile keys is so that no one man may... May what? May arm the missiles. Mm -hmm. uh, played by Tim Curry. Yeah. Who is an officer, but he is not one of the ones who wishes to defect, so they also have to keep him in the dark. Mm -hmm. It's so much fun. If you really enjoy trying to track who knows what about a, like a very complex situation, this is definitely a film that you will enjoy. And I love stuff like that, so that was very like compelling to me. Yeah. It is this amazingly tense political thriller. Mm -hmm. And also, because they have Sean Connery here, he gets to give all these great speeches. Mm -hmm. uh, him being this guy who grandstands and gives big speeches makes it more believable that he would do this admittedly kind of melodramatic thing, stealing the sub, uh, having this whole like gambit that he's playing on everyone around him. I believe it because he's like this. Yeah. The film also does a really good job of making things that w could be so mundane into these tension building moments. Like at one point, Ryan is with a carrier fleet. Uh, he's on the uh, Enterprise. Engage. No, not that one. <laughs> he then finds out that the Dallas has been following the Red October. They figure out a way to track its very, very quiet engines mm -hmm. because they have a very talented sonar technician who did not believe the computer radio that said it was a geological event. Mm -hmm. And so he has to fly out on a helicopter to transfer over to the sub to try and make sure that World War III doesn't happen. And just the act of getting him from the helicopter onto the sub in this storm is fantastic. And he eventually, like, they're running out of fuel, like, and they're about to pull Ryan up, and he just releases his safety harness and falls in the water so the divers from the sub have to come get him, <laughs> which puts him off on a very bad foot with the captain, who he has to try and convince to ignore the orders to destroy the Red October... And so there's a great bit where he says that Ramis has been pulling crazy Ivans, right? Watch, he's going to uh, go starboard on the next one. And he does. And later, uh, the captain is like, You know he was going to go to starboard. I didn't. I had a 50-50 chance and I needed a break. Sorry. Which is so good. 
There are parts of this film where it's difficult to tell whether Ryan is very competent with his abilities or whether he is pulling stuff out of his ass because he knows how dire the situation is. He's very Jack Sparrow-y. But, but like, lawful good Jack Sparrow. Yes. Also much less bisexual energy. Yeah, well, yeah. You're right. <laughs> I realize it's not that he has bisexual energy. I'm I, I'm just into him. <laughs> I'm projecting. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, we haven't talked about Jack Ryan hating flying. Oh, yeah. That's another thing. Like, he's so determined about this that even though we keep establishing that he hates the turbulence of flying, he's willing to get onto his helicopter to go to jump onto a submarine in a storm. And that's how, how much he believes in this theory, which is really cool. Yeah, and it's not just that like he hates flying, like, oh, flying is terrible, I can't sleep on planes. Uh, no, he was in a helicopter accident and was nearly paralyzed during his time at the military academy and spent his last year doing schoolwork from the hospital while trying to learn to walk again. Yeah. And he's like, no, I am so confident in this. I will take this chopper over rough seas in a storm to transfer to this submarine to prove that I am right. The submarine that might not know that I'm going to be there and might not be where we think it is. Yeah. Gives us all these breadcrumbs, drops the bomb, and then immediately Jack has to, has this huge decision to make about facing his fear or not. It's great. The film does a excellent job of making all of these things that could be so small and insignificant into these important moments that have meaning in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the outro right before the credits, we finally see Jack Ryan. He's on a plate heading home and he is sleeping. Mm -hmm. And him being this driven is really good. It's it's easy to have characters in crises narratives be just reactive, but Jack Ryan is like a bloodhound with this thing he's trying to achieve and it Mm -hmm. makes him much more compelling than he might otherwise have been. Yeah. Another thing I thought was really good the effects of this movie are only okay because it's from the 90s, but you can still tell what's happening. You can still tell where the subs are in relation to each other, where the torpedoes are, etc. Enough that I can clearly follow what's happening and tell the success or failure of these characters, which is really important with mm-hmm. pre-Jurassic Park level effects. Yes. I will say, I don't know if we need the KGB saboteur. I think there's enough tension happening and that I didn't need that element. I think if, if you removed it, it would be fine. It gives Jack Ryan something to do, but eh. I like it early on because it's causing problems and on the Red October, and like we have no idea who it is. Oh sure, I mean like I mean only at the end when we already have like an, a compelling climax. I don't know if we need also the saboteur with a gun and an explosion right next to the nukes. I think it was like Jack Ryan needs to do something actiony. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he's a former marine. We gotta we gotta make him shoot stuff. Mm-hmm. Which, you're right. I don't think we need. I do like some of that sequence though because it's like directly. Uh, nodding back to Die Hard, which this director also directed. Yeah, I think it's a very well-made scene. I don't know if we necessarily need it for the movie to function. Yes. There's a very good bit where uh, Ramus has been uh, wounded and he tells Jack Ryan, like, Be careful what you shoot at. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. And Jack's like, Be careful what I shoot at. (laughs) It's, It's great. Yeah, like, again, I think that this movie wouldn't really work if Alec Baldwin wasn't like doing such a great job with this character and having a good time doing it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, watching this makes me compelled to go look at some of the uh, watch some of the other Jack Ryan films and see how they've changed. Like, I imagine it's something similar to the way the James Bond franchise operates because mm. 
most of the actors playing Ryan don't play him for very long. I think Harrison Ford plays him in two films. Everyone else is one. And then John Krasinski is currently playing him on television. Mm-hmm. The directors ch- switch around every time. And they, there's very little interconnectedness between the films. They're, they're all kind of standalone. Which makes sense. This little announcement would be very prime for new adventure every movie. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm really interested to see the varying takes on this character. Like, Hunt for Red October has sold me on something that I definitely would not have gone to seek out myself. Right? I was surprised by how compelled I was by these characters. And while I'm glad that it wraps up, we don't necessarily have, like, the Hunt for Red October 2 Ghost of Marks. Um, <laughs> I think this story is wrapped up well enough. I don't necessarily need more of, of it. I just want more of these, of these characters bouncing off of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I'd love it if Sean Connery made a cameo as Ramius in a like another Jack Ryan film. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that happens, but it'd be cool. Listen, <laughs> listen, if the problematic Amazon show that's on right now, like, managed to bring Sean Connery back for, like, a single scene to be Ramius, that'd be amazing. That would, that would make me, like, almost want to watch it. <laughs> Anything I've heard about it is it's very, yikes, with the politics, which, this movie's politics are also a bit, yikes, but, but it's enough in the past that I'm less connected to them and less caring. Yeah, like, both of us were born post-Cold War, so we don't really have a connection to a lot of those politics happening. It's one of the reasons... We we talked about this, why a lot of the stuff in Watchmen just didn't connect. Mm -hmm. But I also think that here, things are nuanced. We have one of the politicians who is like... I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar. And when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. But it also means... That I keep my options open. We, we didn't even talk at all about the Soviet ambassador and the like, <laughs> defense secretary in their office. Like these, this like cat and mouse game of here's what my government has allowed me to tell you about the situation. <laughs> you mean the yes minister sketches that are just inserted into this movie? Yes. Yeah, we'll get to that at some point. Yes. I agree there is a, a, quite a bit of nuance. It is not like, just a propaganda movie, I think that... It's not like Red Dawn. <laughs> no. I think there's an element of collapsing late-era Soviet government and the abstract idea of communism into one thing yes. that the movie does, which I think is not great, and the complicated relationship to communism as an ideology and communism in, pr- uh, in practice in the history of Russia is a big thorny mess that this movie doesn't quite disentangle, but also it's not necessarily trying to. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, I really wouldn't ask it to. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Like, I get it. I yeah. get that's not quite what it's doing. Yeah. I think I'm ready to move into our end segment. Yeah. Which is, which boat is more intact at the end of the movie? Uh, AKA the Ship of Theseus Award. <laughs> I think it has to go to Red October. In fact, in Hunt for Red October, there's only one ship that is sunk, and that's the Konovalov, and it shoots itself. <laughs> that's an amazing sequence. We'll talk about it later. But Red October is fine. They like recover the ship like mostly intact. It sustained a little bit of damage. There's but, some saboteur stuff in the engines, but fixable. Yeah. Whereas in Battleship, we have five alien spaceships destroyed. We have the USS Samson. We have the Miyoko. We have the John Paul Jones. And then severe damage to the USS Missouri. Yeah. Not, not to mention a lot of the infrastructure of the Hawaiian Islands. So, Ship of Theseus Award goes to the Red October. Yeah, uh, and I think it's pretty clear what's moving on this week. Yeah. I think it's interesting that we had these two films that are in some way engaging with this like slow, t- 
intense like chess match of submarine or blind naval warfare, mm-hmm. and they interact with those bits two completely different ways. Mm-hmm. Like one tries to downplay it as much as possible, except for like this one sequence that happens to be the best part in our opinion of the film, and the other just. It is this huge, all-encompassing thing, and the subtle manipulations and the slow, steady approach spreads to everything, even interpersonal interactions. Mm-hmm. I think it's because Battleship really wanted this to be like a, a big military action movie, whereas Hunt for October really understood that submarine combat isn't really this really big action movie narrative. It's slow cat and mouse thinky stuff and i think it understood what it was talking about better than battleship did yeah but thank you for joining us if you want to hear about our thoughts on other movies you'll have to follow us on facebook twitter and wherever you catch your pods what's up next week so next week we have the poseidon adventure which i believe is the oldest film on this bracket sounds right it may be jaws it's one of the two Mm -hmm. and then we have kevin costner's Waterworld. (laughs) oh boy I understand why they attempted Waterworlds. Like, what if Mad Max, but the exact opposite? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's a compelling concept. I think that what I've heard about the movie is that it doesn't quite deliver well on what it could have been. Yeah. That said, it's not the kind of thing I would really enjoy, like a reboot or TV show version of, now that we have the effects to really pull that off. Mm-hmm. And that would make me like think more about global warming and how terrified I am of that. So maybe not. I take it back. <laughs> it's truly wild that despite how long we've known about the potential dangers of the rising sea levels, the only thing on this bracket I can think of that's really going to like address that in any way is uh, uh, in the heart of the sea. <laughs> oh, no. Well, now I'm thinking of like having to deal with like pandemic response with Jaws. But all that is coming up in the future. Yes. Um, Next week we get to like the Poseidon Adventure, which I hear great things about, but I have not seen. Uh, and it's also had a number of remakes and reimaginings. It's one of the movies that Sarah Hollowell talks about a lot, so I have high hopes. Mm-hmm. I think we can probably at least have fun talking about Waterworld, <laughs> even if we don't necessarily enjoy the film. But I don't know, we'll see. It's been a while since I've seen it. And just because the internet doesn't like a thing doesn't mean it's actually bad. Yeah, I mean, we have found some amazing gems on this podcast. Right. Dinosaur made it to like our quarterfinals, uh, like our semifinals. That's because I'm a communist and also very gay for Aladar. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> No, no, that's not fair enough. That's nonsense. But both of those things are true. I mean, yes, but they're not valid. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I'm not a kind of king shame. Not on this podcast. You probably should. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us, despite uh, me. Everything. Everything I've ever said in my life. Uh, we'll join us next week. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.